Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, the director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Melissa Grayboys, Associate Professor of Medical History and African History at the University of Oregon. Her research focus is on epidemic diseases and the history of modern Africa, with an emphasis on issues related to global health. Her first book, The Experiment Must Continue, Medical Research and Ethics in East Africa, 1940 to 2014, tells the story of human experimentation and medical ethics in East Africa from 1940 to the present. Grayboys and her family lived in Italy between September 2019 and September 2020, a year of research leave to work on her next book about the history of malaria in Africa. Thanks, Melissa, for coming on the show. Thanks, Paul, for having me. So you had the unique opportunity to have been in Italy, one of the, I guess, the place in Europe hardest hit by COVID-19. You were there when it struck. Can you tell us about your experience from both personal and professional perspectives? Sure. Um, yeah, we were living in the northern um, metropolis of Milan, Milano, um, in the capital of Lombardia, which was the first place that um, was really hit hard by COVID in February um, of 2020. So we were living there at the time and it was just very chaotic at the beginning because this was when news had not yet really sunk in that um, this was not just a Chinese disease, this was not just um, isolated to Wuhan, um, but that had actually already spread globally. So we know from genetic tracing of the disease that by February, 2020, it was essentially on every continent it was essentially all over the United States, definitely on the West Coast. Um, and it was all over Italy at that point too. But because of testing protocols that were put in place that they could only test people who had had direct contact with China or someone who was a known positive, um, they were probably about three to four weeks minimum behind the epidemic and the level of diseases that was already present. So by the end of February, um, the Italian government decided to create um, zone rosse, red zones that were entirely cut off, that were essentially hard quarantine sites like they did in Wuhan. Um, and as soon as that got established about an hour away from where we were living in Milano, I decided um, kind of drawing on my professional background and understanding of epidemiology and contagious diseases that we did not want to be in a large urban center where we were reliant on public transportation, where I didn't know what the ventilation system was like in the large apartment building. I didn't know how we were going to get groceries because there weren't online groceries at that point. Um, so we, I packed up our apartment and packed up our kids and we left the day that the first red zone was announced before Milan was encompassed in that red zone. And we kind of retreated to a rural um, mountainous area where my husband grew up and where his family, part of his family still resides. So it was a very chaotic beginning. And um, I think it's hard to remember even just nine or 10 months ago, how much we didn't know and how much um, how much our science has advanced and our, our general public health understanding of the disease has advanced in the past 10 months. Because back in February, we were a lot of people were really just flying blind, including the WHO, including the CDC, including national um, public health um, lawmakers and doctors. We just didn't know a lot. Tell us a little bit about how the uh, protocols in Italy evolved uh, between February and, and when you left? 
Yeah, it was really fascinating to see up close um, Ital uh, the Italian state's public health response to this disease because they were the first hit in Europe. They were the hardest hit in Europe in terms of um, number of cases and actual mortality numbers. And that's partially because Italy has an extremely aged senior population, huge percentage of people over the age of 65 and 75. Um, I thought the Italian state overall did a very good job um, working under the conditions of the the changing science at the very beginning, where in February and March, we had very um, incomplete information. Asymptomatic transmission was just being reported. Airborne transmission was almost unimaginable. Many scientists were saying, we don't have to worry about COVID because it's not airborne. It's not like measles. It's not that contagious. And of course, that ended up being exactly the opposite. But um, what I thought the Italian state did really, really well was that politicians ceded a lot of authority to a technical committee that the prime minister, um, that Conte set up. And this was a very sprawling committee. I mean, it has dozens and dozens of people and experts from all different fields. And when it got set up, people really made a joke of it in the media. And I also thought it was, it was too big. It was unwieldy. They were never going to be able to make decisions. And it ultimately has functioned so well that I think it's an amazing model of an interdisciplinary thinking about a true public health problem that requires more than just epidemiologists, requires more than just engineers, requires more than just psychologists, more than just medical doctors, more than pulmonologists. Um, and that the Italian government has really taken that advice to heart. They haven't done everything, but they've been a really, I would say, science-driven approach and evidence-based approach to trying to come up with restrictions and regulations. And as a counterpoint to the United States, um, and even a counterpoint to other states in Europe, like Switzerland is just across the border and they've taken a very different approach, much more laissez-faire, and ultimately with a per capita much higher death rates, much higher numbers in general. Um, but the Italian state did have extremely restrictive policies and that for 10 weeks, in March and April, the entire country um, was on lockdown. We were not allowed to come out of our houses unless we were essential workers going to the hospital or going to get groceries. And that wasn't, you couldn't go out for exercise. You couldn't go out for a bike ride. They really locked down hard. And when they opened up, it was in two to three week increments. So they could really keep track of what um, the reproduction rate was doing, how contagious it was, how quickly it was spreading. And they were very thoughtful about that. So that was a really great, it actually made me feel very proud as a public health professional to see how thoughtful this opening was in April, May, and June. And then of course it all kind of went haywire um, really August and September people took the liberties too far. There, there was a relaxing and this release of stress that people thought they could continue to um, interact with each other in the same ways they could before. And then we had this tremendous second surge in October and November that was really traumatic in Italy again. So you mentioned in passing how it looked to you uh, from Italy when you looked over at the United States and you started a blog in March Tell us about your perspective on how it looked to, to you, what was happening in the US, Argo, the blog that you started. Yeah, it, it was so hard to sit in Italy in March and watch how awful things were in Italy and to know that we had been living in Milano an hour away from where hospitals were being overwhelmed in Bergamo. And just that every night there was, 
twice a day on the news, there was people reading out the death tolls. And it really felt like what I imagine World War II felt like and listening to the radio and just hearing this massive amount of, of death around you and this, this constant reminder of suffering. Um, and it was really hard in March to sit inside your house and listen to this every day. And I'm not a first responder. I couldn't work in the hospital. There was nothing I could do other than my part was to sit at home and do nothing. But it was, it was, what I think was great was that the Italian state as a whole and a lot of the um, kind of rhetoric or propaganda, you might say, coming out was really about solidarity and suffering, that it was recognizing that there were millions of people suffering, there were thousands of people dying, um, and that it was, we were only going to come out the other end of it through a real sense of solidarity that we, we all had to sacrifice in, in meaningful ways. And that resonated with me so strongly when we were sitting in Italy because it was the most profoundly terrible thing I had ever witnessed and sat through and been near to. Um, and I think that's true of many people of many generations right now. It's the worst thing that we've, we've lived through. But I felt the physical proximity and the geography of where I was was just, it was shocking to see hospitals in, in such a rich country with patients laying on the floor, with doctors passing out because they were exhausted, with people publicly talking about how these they were rationing care and there were not enough ventilators. So people died in hospitals who otherwise could have been treated. So coming from that frame of mind and that reality sitting in Italy and then turning and reading the US papers, it was, it was like whiplash. It felt like we were living in different universes that we knew the disease was coming to the US. We knew it was in the US at that point. And then to continue to see no protocols, no public health leadership, no one springing into action, no one, no one on the public record seeming to understand the gravity of what was about to hit us. Just, it, it felt nauseating. Um, and you then, you then started the blog. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the blog? Yeah. So in my sense of kind of desperation and not knowing what to do with myself, um, I felt like I wanted to write and I wanted to write partially about the things that were happening in Italy and being well reported in the Italian news media that were not showing up in any English language news that I was reading. And I was reading a lot at that point. Um, and I just felt like there was some great reporting being done in Italian that I wanted to write about and I wanted to draw attention to. But I also wanted to talk about the reality of how strange the life was that we were living and how much suffering was going on around us. Um, I was on a leave of absence from the university, so I had the luxury of I wasn't having to remote teach. Um, I had a small number of students I was still advising through phone calls, but this was such a traumatic time. I couldn't write on my book. I couldn't continue doing research like normal. This was the only thing I could think about. This was the only thing I was staying up late in the night, reading all the newspapers and reading all the journal articles and reading all that latest epidemiology on it. So it felt like an outlet for me to be able to share some of the things I was seeing and hearing in Italy that I felt like were prescient and were things that I felt like were going to become important in the US and that I hoped that some percentage of English speaking people who were reading my blog might think about these things and maybe maybe brace themselves, maybe be a little more prepared than they would have been otherwise. So you tell us about your experience returning to the US at the end of the summer. 
Yeah, so eventually we came back <laughs> um, and it was a hard decision to make because in Italy in August, um, the number of cases was sometimes like 100 per day for the entire country. So it was so well controlled. Beaches were open, amusement parks were open, theaters were open. People were so joyous and so relieved that this, this horror of, of March and April seemed to have receded and we could forget it. And it was joyous for us too to be able to feel slightly more relaxed. Um, and then, uh, you know, July, August was when things were surging in the United States and nearly as bad as it has this winter. But we looked at the numbers and I looked at the numbers and I thought, I don't know if I want to come back to this. It was a patchwork of public health policies, um, a patchwork of regulations. In Italy, since March, you have essentially had to wear a mask outside of your house. That's been the rule everywhere. And there are a strict fines, hundreds, if not thousands of euros for people who don't adhere to that. And there really is enforcement that makes other people feel safe. So I was hesitant to return to the United States. Um, and since we did, um, I mean, it's been fine in the sense that my family has the luxury of being able to work remotely, that I have the luxury of being able to not stick my kids in a daycare center with you know 50 other kids. I have a lot of um, privilege to be able to protect myself and my family in ways that, that feel okay. That doesn't mean that what's going on on the state level or the national level is good because it's not. I find it really harrowing and I keep trying to figure out, I think as many of us are, what do we do to help? What is our role? I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse. I don't need to go treat patients in the ER. So what is my contribution in this time other than making sure that I don't hopefully add to the number of cases and the number of people that need to be treated? And I think that's a really hard question for all of us to kind of think about right now. So a new um, presidential administration is, is uh, going to be arriving soon and taking over the reins of government in the United States. What advice would you give to that new administration in relation to the pandemic? Yeah, I don't think it's groundbreaking advice at this point. <laughs> I think we're in the luxurious position of having figured out a lot of what we need to keep publics, not just one person, but communities as a whole safe. Uh, that's going to become a lot easier with the vaccine. The first Oregonians were vaccinated yesterday. That's amazing. And that's going to do so much to help protect our healthcare workers and other frontline essential workers. But we need, we need a consistent message. We need a consistent message about masking across the United States. We need a consistent message about social distancing and asking people to avoid gatherings. We need so, you know, consistent messages about small gatherings and avoiding large numbers of people, density of people for another few months. And I think where I hope to see a lot of um, proactive leadership from the Biden administration is in two areas. One is about reaching out to communities that are vaccine hesitant, that are unlikely to be first in line and raising their hands for the vaccine, but are also unfortunately disproportionately affected by COVID. So communities of color, especially African-Americans and Hispanics have been so hard hit in the United States, two to three times harder for number of cases and mortality and severe cases. Um, those are also communities that in general, when surveyed, have said they're not going to be first in line for COVID or that they have a lot of questions and concerns. And historically, when we look at other vaccines, we know that's true. So now is the time. It's good that that vaccine is not going to be available mass, mass um, available to the mass public for another few months, because now is the time 
for hard work around public health communication, reaching out and listening to why people are hesitant and trying to meet them where they are to find a space that they feel comfortable to get vaccinated because that's critical for everyone's health. Um, and the second area that I would hope to see real big changes is in the role of the CDC. It's been so sad as a public health professional to see the um, how politicized the CDC has allowed itself to become over the last eight months of the pandemic and to see how many mistakes they've made, whether through, i do not sure if it's political meddling, whether it's habitual underfunding, whether it's understaffing or a combination of all, but the CDC has lost so much prestige and so much authority, both in the United States and globally, that I hope that they can begin to reemerge and rebuild in ways that allows Americans to trust them. Because I have to say, as a public health professional, CDC is no longer who I look to for information. I actually, I triangulate the information between the WHO and the CDC and well-respected science journalists and well-respected science and medical journals like New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet and the British Medical Journal. I look at those in nature and science and I see how is what's being reported in these top journals aligning with what the CDC and what the WHO says. And it's just really unfortunate that too often those three have not been in alignment in the way that they should. So as you know, there are um, people high in the United States government who are arguing for the value of herd immunity that I read an article just today about someone high in the government saying we should, that's what we should have been striving for, herd immunity. And I'm, I'm just curious from your perspective, what is herd immunity? What would it require and why isn't it a viable uh, strategy for dealing with COVID-19? So herd immunity basically applies to the idea that a certain percentage of the whole population will get a disease and become immune to that disease. And then overall circulation will decrease or drop off really dramatically because there's not enough of non-immune people for this virus or this disease to bounce into and infect. Um, and the reason, and there's lots of governments that have talked about this, not just the US, Sweden. Um, Sweden is one that I continue to knock my head up against the wall because it, it seems like they should be smarter in, in, in doing this. And most public health people think that herd immunity is not a reasonable approach for coronavirus for a number of reasons. Um, first is the ethics of it, that um, it leaves the most vulnerable. And in this case, we know that's over 65s, um, people with underlying medical conditions it leaves them out in the cold. It essentially tells the most vulnerable to this disease in our society that we're unwilling to modify our general behaviors in any way to protect your life. And that we recognize a significant proportion of you vulnerable people will have to die while the rest of us get herd immunity, even though we know there's strategies that we could be using to minimize the circulation of this disease. So I think from an ethical perspective, it says something about um, how we value individuals' lives within our society and whether we value all lives equally. A second problem is just um, biologically, physiologically, we don't know how long immunity to, to COVID-19 lasts. So let's say that we let a lot of people die in the um, hunt for herd immunity and we get to that 75 or 85%. And no one really knows what that number is because it can be a bit different with each disease based on the epidemiology. Let's say we get to 85% herd immunity. We've lost a lot of people who probably could have been saved. Um, if immunity only lasts three to six months and is also dependent on other environmental conditions like humidity or temperature, which we still haven't fully sorted through, we could be back in the exact same situation six months later. 
that, that would be really harrowing. So then what did the lives lost mean in that first attempt for herd immunity, if we're just going to have to repeat it again? So I think, um, you know, herd immunity gets talked about sometimes in, when we don't have any control strategies for a disease. And we say, this is what we're aiming for, because somehow there will be some relief at this point. The disease will have burned through the non-immune population and transmission will slow. And we know that works in model, lots of disease modeling, and it has worked in certain conditions, but that's not... I don't think any empathetic approach to public health would see that as a strategy that we would want to embrace. Can you account for, I mean, some of the people that have been advocating for herd immunity are medical professionals. Can you account for that? Yeah, I think that it, to me, one of the things that's become very glaring in the types of advice that people have given about how the US or individual communities should respond to COVID is the difference of a medical response and a public health response. Um, and I think we need medical professionals. They are vital, vital members of our society and they're absolutely essential as through the fight of COVID. But medical doctors are trained to, to um, treat individual patients. Their primary concern is what do I need to get my patient in front of me um, healthy? And maybe they can envision my patient as their whole set of patients that they, they, they treat, maybe, maybe not. But that's the emphasis of medical education. That's the emphasis of biomedical treatment um, for the last 150, 200 years, and that's fine. But public health is quite different as a discipline and as an interdisciplinary field. I'm less concerned about the one sick person in front of me and more concerned about the implications of that one sick person on everyone around them that they may have contact with directly or indirectly. So that means that public health approaches to thinking about contagious disease, infectious disease, pandemics like this, global health professionals will often come to and start from and suggest a different set of strategies than medical doctors will. So I don't think many public health professionals back in February thought the way to fight the pandemic was to create a million um, ventilators because every person who had COVID would just have a ventilator as soon as they got in the ICU. I think public health people started thinking about what are those epidemiological webs of connection? And if you're here and I'm here and they're here, how do these kind of fit together? And where do you break that web? Where do you break that cycle of transmission? Because public health professionals are trained to think on a bigger, broader level rather than just one patient. And that has its shortcomings also. Um, but I think that's part of this distinction about herd immunity. I don't think there are many public health people who think that if there are tools available, herd immunity is a strategy we would proactively adopt. So you mentioned that we don't know if, if herd immunity was something that we pursued, we don't even know how long immunity to COVID obtains. And we know we've been impressed by the speed with which the vaccine has been discovered, approved, and now is now beginning to get distributed. Do we know about the duration of the protection that the COVID vaccine provides? Do we even know that? No, no, we don't. Um, we will continue to learn it because the first patients, the first um, research subjects that were enrolled in the Pfizer trial months ago, um, will continue to be tracked. And we will continue to see how many of those people who received the um, actual vaccine, not the placebo, because this was a randomized control trial, those who received the, placebo, uh, the actual experimental vaccine six months ago, 
we will, we have them six months ago and we will continue to track them into the future. Eventually we will see, likely we'll see efficacy of the vaccine start to drop off and that will correspond with increased numbers of people in that original group getting exposed and actually testing positive for COVID. The only other way that we know this is through kind of natural experiments that have showed up um, and where doctors or public health people have been able to carefully measure and track. And unfortunately, those natural experiments are few and far between in terms of being reported in the medical and scientific literature. Um, I mean, there are some, like just like we have a few reported cases of people being reinfected with either COVID a second time with the same genetic um, tracings or with different, with mutations that show you can be infected a second time. So I think unfortunately with the immunity, we're all holding our breath, we're hoping. Um, we, we hope it lasts a long time. And the, the basis of this three to six months kind of estimate or even six to nine month estimate that people have talked about with the vaccine are based on how natural immunity works with other coronaviruses like SARS or MERS um, and how other vaccines targeting coronavirus, we think that they would be working. So we're just gonna have to keep watching the scientific data as it comes in. And unfortunately it's, it, it's an experiment in real time. And it's fantastic that the vaccine was developed and went from nothing to usable in less than a year. It's absolutely astounding accomplishment. And now we have to sit and wait and we continue to vaccinate people. But when we get into hard questions like side effects and vulnerable populations and how well does it work for pregnant women and how well does it work for children under 16 and how well does it protect adults over 85 or 75 years old? We don't actually have a lot of hard data on those things. And what we're going to be doing is essentially like a phase four continuous monitoring of the vaccine with just a high level of scrutiny by the FDA and, and other institutions to keep track of this and to really see as the data continues to come in, what we can say about how long immunity lasts, how safe it is for all populations, side effects that might come out on a population level, um, reductions in severe cases versus mild cases and other kind of demographic differences that might pop up. So you mentioned a while ago um, the importance of communicating to particular communities that are resistant to taking the vaccine, the importance of taking the vaccine. You've just outlined a set of conditions that seem to me to make the argument for taking the vaccine to communities that are skeptical even more difficult. Yes. Can you say, do you have any advice for how these arguments should be made? How are you going to convince people? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking in particular of communities of color where there's a history of abuse by medical, the medical profession in terms of vaccines. Uh, but I'm also thinking of um, communities that are in denial, uh, okay. refusing to wear masks and, and anti-vaxxers that are, that it's not because of a particular history, it's because of a particular belief system. What kind of advice would you give to people that are trying to persuade these communities to take the vaccine? Yeah, it's, it's a huge question. It's a very good one. Um, in general, there's a lot of different diverse groups that would make up what we would call vaccine hesitant. So one way or another that they have doubts or unwillingness to vaccine and to line to vaccinate themselves lining up. And some of that could be specific to COVID because they think it's, it's a sham. The disease doesn't really exist. Um, for other people, it's part of a larger vaccine hesitancy because they're worried about the MMR vaccine causing autism, or they're confused about the science of it, or they don't understand the, um, the timing of why young children get so many vaccines at, at a certain timeline. 
but I think that it's quite different. So each of those concerns have to be dealt with differently, just as the concerns of, uh, you know, an elderly African American man who's had negative experiences with the healthcare system is going to be quite different than the concerns of an undocumented migrant who maybe is only a Spanish speaker, but still would like to access care, but is hesitant and, and uncertain about what that might do to their, their, their status in the United States. So I think that part of it is recognizing that there's not just one group of people who don't want the vaccine, but there's a lot of people who have different concerns that have to be addressed. Um, and I think it's it's a really hard question. I've had a student in the past who worked with the Lane County Public Health Office about the pertussis vaccine and the pertussis outbreaks that we've actually had in, in the Eugene and Lane County area before. And she did interviews with people who were vaccine hesitant. And I thought this student came to an amazing conclusion because when we sat down at her thesis defense, our um, Lane County Public Health Director, Pat Ludke, he asked her, he said, so what are we supposed to do about these people? Do we just force them? Is there a law? Do you just hit them over the head with the scientific data? And she said, no, I think you just have to have a conversation with them. And I, I thought that that was so humane and so accurate that there's not a silver bullet. There's not one thing you can tell to everyone that's gonna convince them. But I think starting from a space of conversation, which is so painfully slow and hard to do, and that medical professionals are not necessarily trained to do. That's not necessarily what they want to do. They're there to give injections to people and save them. They're not there to change their minds slowly and surely and reassure them about doubts. Um, but I think some of the real ideas that are being used here in Oregon are good ones, that we have to work through community-based organizations that are ethnically identified. You have to work through churches and faith-based organizations. You have to find community leaders that are well-respected amongst those who are vaccine-hesitant and have them publicly speak about that. Um, I think the things, the publicity that's being done about who are the first people to get these vaccines, that in New York, it was, um, it, they're all women of color, men and women of color who have said very purposely, including in Oregon, we're here to help show people in our communities that this is safe, that this is something they can trust, and that me as somebody as a trained professional, I feel it's safe for me and my family. And I think those are all little bits of things we can do. But I think on a one-to-one -one level, Engaging people we know in those kinds of conversations, which I realize can be really hard, maybe slightly less treacherous than having political conversations right now, but to say, you know, I really care about your health and I really love to get together and visit with you again and I hope we can both be vaccinated because then this will make us all safer and able to do that. And I think as much as we can framing it outside of what I want you to do and what you need to do, but about how the vaccine allows us to come together safely and regain parts of our lives that we've had to put on hold may be an effective strategy. That sounds very wise to me. Melissa, we're coming to the very end of our uh, time together. Um, let me switch gears a tiny bit. You mentioned quite early in the interview that you were in Italy on a research leave and you were working on your second book. How did the COVID and you, you spoke a bit about this. How did the COVID epidemic impact your research? Did it, did it inhibit you? Did it derail you? Say a bit about that. Yeah, I got really lucky because we arrived in Italy in summer of 2019 and um, we planned to be there for 14 months. And my partner, Alfredo Berlando, who was also a UO faculty member, it was his sabbatical and my leave of absence. And we divided the year in half. And I said, 
I'm going to take the first year and I'm going to do all my research trips. And I went to Sweden and I went to Norway and I went to Zanzibar multiple times and I went to the UK. I met all the colleagues. I went to all the archives I needed. And I gathered like a Hoover vacuum machine and I just sucked everything up so I could sit the second half of the year. And in February is when my husband's trips were supposed to start. And that was, he had trips to Australia and Uganda and Zambia and Liberia um, and back to the US and Norway and the UK. And he had equally exciting research things set up for the second half of the year. And of course, it, he, lost, he lost everything and his research truly suffered. Um, I got lucky by happenstance and I collected my materials the first half of the year and had spent a great deal of time in Zanzibar and found an amazing Tanzanian collaborator that I was working very closely with. And so my research stopped in February and March because mentally I couldn't, I couldn't think about it anymore. There was too much tragedy. There was too much suffering. There was too much of everything going on around me to be able to focus. And I think that was the same for many people. But in terms of my actual research, I found so much and I felt so energized by it. And I, I do think that COVID has allowed me to think about epidemic diseases and malaria in some different ways and putting human faces on it and thinking about epidemic diseases in terms of the long-term suffering that they cause communities and the embodied suffering and the kind of tragedies that come around with diseases. I think it's, it's um, attenuated me to think about even my, my past research about malaria in slightly different ways. Well, that seems like a, a lovely place to end our interview. I wanna thank you, Melissa, for speaking with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I've been speaking with Melissa Grayboys, Associate Professor of Medical History and African History at the Clark Honors College at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching. Mm -hmm.